You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very pleased to be bringing you this conversation recorded live at the Llama Tree Festival in 2016 with... T- I don't know why I said the year. It's this year. <laughs> I think I think the point is I've had to sit on this episode for a while because I've been putting other ones out. I wanted to put this one out earlier in the festival, uh, in the Edinburgh Festival, so that uh, uh, it would help direct people towards TIFF. I wasn't able to do that, but by all accounts, you had a sensational Edinburgh anyway. So uh, apologies to TIFF for this one not coming out sooner. It um, uh, my, my feelings of guilt over that basically manifested in me pointing out it was 2016. An absolutely textbook introduction, I think you'll agree. Uh, so, the Lava Tree Festival earlier this year, this is the absolutely brilliant Tiffany Stevenson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Comedian's Comedian, live here at Lama Tree Festival. Would you please welcome my guest today, the sensationally funny Tiffany Stevenson. Hi. Hello there, Tiff. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Did you see my panic there? Did you? Well, I had to say hi before I sat down as soon as I got to the microphone. Because in my head, yes. I still had that I was doing a gig. Yes. And this I was is... like, <laughs> as, soon as, I, as soon as I've got that mic, I need to speak into it. This is something that uh, a lot of my guests say uh, around about 10 minutes in. My guests tend to panic and go, oh, God, I'm not being very funny, am I? And uh, I go, it's absolutely fine. Although, look at these lots. They're like, it's not going to be funny. That isn't fine at all. That's not what we're here for. Um, so Suck I'm... up my process, guys. That's what it's about. Absolutely. Now, for those uh, listening or for those here who perhaps don't know you... Let's give us a bit of a snapshot of who you are in comedy and where you're at at the moment. Oh, isn't it terrible? It's a terrible question to open with, isn't it? What kind of things do you do? Um, so, I am a, a stand up comic, I'm an actress, I'm a writer, I'm a slashy, which normally means you're not very good at one thing, so you try and spread yourself across three different things. <laughs> um, Com- comedian and podcaster Stu Goldsmith doesn't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I've been doing stand-up now for 10 years. Okay. And, oh, it's so impossible to describe what you, what you do. I guess I do slightly more long-form comedy. Uh, so I try and talk about things that I feel passionate about and make them funny. So uh, comedians write in different ways. You know, if you're a one-liner comic or a short-form comic, you might go, just what's the funniest way I can put this sentence around? Or if a topic comes up, you're like, what's the funniest thing you know, I can get out of this, where I tend to look at the world. I try, if I'm at my best, 
And, you know, it makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit to say that. But if, if I'm at my best, uh, I'm doing sort of political, personal and, you know, social, what it says about the world at large, so whatever the topic is. OK. In terms of my stand-up and then acting is just, you know, that's part of a collaborative process with other people. And if it's shit, it's not your fault. I can, I, so. can ask, I can ask you almost nothing about acting. I was a, a very fraudulent actor. So let's focus on the comedy for now. And we might, because I know you're in uh, the new series of People Just Do Nothing. Yes. So uh, we might talk about that in a bit, because that's, cool. that's excellent. So I'm lucky enough to have seen uh, a pre-release copy of your new DVD, yeah. Madman. Yes. And uh, tell us about that. It, it seemed to me that it was really funny, and it seemed to me to be taking an enormous amount of different subjects there's loads of different topical stuff in it loads of really big you're talking about race and identity um what was the starting point for that show that was your sixth edinburgh show yeah my sixth um and i think i've always sort of <laughs> done sort of theme shows the problem is obviously you pick a title or decide what you're going to do you know in months january in february months in advance and then you get to august and you go ah. Oh! Uh, <laughs> so with madman ostensibly i wanted to talk about identity so i'm glad you picked that up and advertising and what role advertising plays in our personal identities like how much of the stuff that we like or we're influenced by is stuff that we're genuinely choosing or how much of us is it uh, how much of it is us being led towards okay. the thing how much are we being manipulated as people and then that was the broad sort of theme of the show and then within that I, it's a, a case of wanting to talk about what's important to me so uh, there was stuff about equal marriage in there there's stuff about uh, politics there's stuff about women there's stuff about race politics in america and gun control so yeah it does cover quite a lot of stuff yeah and and you're just talk to me about the very beginning of that because the the process i often find myself in i'm doing my sixth hour at edinburgh this year is as much as there are things in my mind that I go, oh, it'd be good to talk about that, I seem to, I think, I, I find it very hard to escape from the starting point of, oh, I've got to somehow write another hour. Like, I always see it as a mountain to climb. That's why I've ended up right. uh, interviewing people about how the hell they do it. Um, <laughs> because for me, I always... I think there are, there are sort of two schools of thought. There's, what, am, what do I have a burning desire to talk about? And there's, how can I fill an hour with people laughing? Sure. So what's the most, what was the very beginning of that? When you said identity, did you have a, did you have a joke that covered the, the topic of identity that you went, that could be the cornerstone of the hour? Yeah, uh, for this year, actually, differently to other years, I sort of went with what am I talking about a lot on stage at Old Rope, which is a new material night that I run and host, which you've played a few times. Yes. So I'm there every week coming up with stuff, and I tend to look at what the themes might be. So within that, there sort of came this routine about the argument. Uh, well, I suppose one of the sort of things was it being in Australia the year before, I'd had a few sort of rows with people after my gigs on the roadshow. Okay. That's the, is that the Melbourne Comedy Melbourne Festival Melbourne Comedy Festival roadshow. Okay. Road so there were two sort of incidents. One I mentioned in the show, which is a woman who came up to me after the show and went, yeah, I love your comedy, but the thing is, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's just the way it's always been. Um, and then I have a whole routine where I unpack that as an idea and it's about it's, it being the stupidest anti-progress argument that there is, you know, and then I basically take it <laughs> through evolution right back to us being fish. Okay. Um, so you've seen that in the <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah. Right, so that was one of the key routines in the show because I think in the beginning I was like, I want to talk a bit about equality um, because the law, this law, I say law, like they passed a ruling that 
you know, the BBC had passed a rule to say we must have at least one woman on a panel show. And I think I just got sort of frustrated, like at least one, you know, because we're 51% of the population. So uh, we're the oppressed majority, which is such a weird thing to be. (laughs) Um, So I started just looking at all the areas of inequality, I guess, and that's probably where the process for that show started. Whereas the process for the show the year before was very different um, because I started writing what I thought for my Optimist show. I started writing what I thought was just sort of uh, a regular stand-up show, but then it kind of delved quite deeply into my depression and suicide attempts. Okay. So that was a, that ended up becoming a much more revealing show. And though I love doing it, I think performing that on stage every night and kind of going back to that place that I was in was really hard work. And so this year I was like, I just want to talk about stuff. Of course, there will be me in it. Of course, it will be personal because it's always going to be personal. But, uh, yeah, you leave. This is probably a good point. Uh, (laughs) Guys, I want to talk about depression. So feel free to... um, I like to be underscored for that as well. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, So, yeah. So I guess from... um, I guess from that point of view, I, I'm always sort of looking at where, where am I in the world? How do I feel about what's going on? And then I sort of grow a show from there. Okay. So, and I guess in 2014, it grew from me kind of looking back over that phase of my life. And this year, the cornerstone was that question, not that question, the statement, which was marriages between a man and a woman. And then um, this year's show was actually sort of, it's all about ethics and morals and that sort of come up one of the core routines from that came out of being at Latitude Festival last year never heard of it (laughs) which is going on exactly the same time as this Um, and uh, backstage meeting a very drunken friend of a girl who used to work for my agent so she she was with a very drunk woman who we got into this weird sort of debate where she tried to ethically top trump me which was was very odd without sort of giving away the routine Um, but uh, yeah, it was a. Okay, okay, I'll say it. I mean, we can always take it out, can't we? Basically, I was complaining about my the fact that I'd been put in a in accommodation in a wood and got bitten by, you know, horse flies, and I'd reacted to it and I'd swollen up and I looked like I had elephantitis. So I was seeing this big sort of long whinge to the booker, and then uh, her friend leant in and went, uh, "Syria." <laughs> <laughs> And I said, sorry, what? And she went, yeah, there's people in refugee camps in Syria, so maybe you want to think about that. Um, I was like, maybe I think think about not smashing your face in. But it sort of of starts from there and how I think that's a stupid reductive argument. So sometimes my comedy comes from someone said a thing or did a thing and then I get into unpacking the sort of illogical thought process behind yes. that. Yes, I remember having, we were talking about Ed Byrne earlier on, and when Ed Byrne was on this show a couple of years ago, he was talking about, or it, it seemed to me that a lot of his comedy arises from him trying to retrospectively win an argument that right. he'd lost some <laughs> yeah. years before, and he'd just he'd walk away thinking, oh, I wish I'd said that, or I could have said that, or that's how to attack it. And I think you're, although you're not as overtly an argumentative performer you know you don't you, you're not savaging people there is almost that theme within your work i noticed a couple of times in, in the the dvd um you you have a, 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 a almost like a line of um uh, a line within your what am i trying to say structurally when you're talking about a subject you'll say my friend said this and i said that 
And I'm just wondering how much of that is a comic device and yeah. how much of that is purely based on an actual friend who said an actual thing. Uh, so when you're talking about gun control in America, for example. Yes, that's a genuine argument. Okay. But I changed. It was actually with... Sometimes they're with comics and sometimes I will change <laughs> the name of the person to protect the comic. Uh, and at that time it was a, it was a comic uh, and it, that was arguing with me about gun control, an American comic. And... Um, yeah, that w when he said the number one cause of death in America is obesity. <laughs> and I was saying that's not even the same argument as talking about guns, you know. Okay. You can't kill someone else with your, obes your obesity unless you literally sit on them and suffocate them to death. Then, yes, you can. <laughs> so, um, so that was a genuine argument, and it, and it all got a bit sort of heated and a bit sort of weird, and there was another comedian there who was trying to be the peacemaker. But I, I, and, and I'm not a person that goes, oh, I'm just going to have a row with someone and make it an awkward weekend for everyone. So I was sure. sort of going, yeah, but no, <laughs> you're wrong. And that doesn't make any sense. And OK, let's leave it and talk about something else. Um, so, yeah, so a, a majority of them, if there's a situation like that in the show, it's real. Uh, but I'm trying to think if I've made up ones in the past. Uh, I probably have made up a couple, but I would say probably... 70%, 70 to 80% of those okay. are real scenarios and situations. And what is most important to you in a show? Is, it, is thing number one make them laugh as long and as hard as possible? Or is thing number one express yourself or the argument that you want, want to get across? I think I'm long beyond worrying about whether I can make people laugh. So that was a thing I let go of um, a few years back, actually. Like, I was like, I know I can make people laugh, and there are very easy ways to make people laugh. Um, so my job, or what I like to think my job is, is that I would like people to come along and think, and think about something in a different way, and they can disagree with it, and that's cool. But to just come along, laugh, uh, maybe, you know, not, I'm not saying learn, I'm not you know necessarily here to teach people i'm here to entertain people but uh and obviously i want it to be as funny as it, as it can be because i'm a comedian there's no point doing it if it just feels like a ted talk or a lecture you know uh i want it to be a funny comedy show but i know i can make people laugh so it's about challenging sometimes you want to shock people sometimes you want to provoke them and there's a great quote from george carlin i think who said um He's been interviewed by someone. I saw this on a cable network once late at night. And they said, oh, you're often described as a shock comic. Does that upset or irritate you? And he was like, well, you know what? Shock is just another form of surprise, which all comedy is based on. And I found that really interesting. So there are points where you are playing with the tension in the room. And sometimes I'll purposefully lose them so I can win them back. You know, there's routines in the show where it can get quite edgy. The Jack Daniels routine you probably saw in the show, mm -hmm. where that plays with the perception of race and stuff in America. And interestingly, since I've been doing that routine, it's been uncovered that a slave uh, in the Jack Daniels uh, factory was actually responsible for coming up with the recipe. Okay. So it's really... And so loads okay. of people were sending me that after they'd seen my show, sure. going, oh, wow, look at this. So, so in that... And, and that's a real moment where you have to play the room right because... And that's where you hope it's your audience because what you don't want is, is, is a piece of satire. And if they respond to it... It's a piece of satire around race. So the only way I can describe it without doing the routine is to say that, you know, it looks like I'm going to say a certain word. I don't say the word. Um, but there's an edginess in the room and there's a little bit of tension. And when people get what the routine's actually about, it, it kind of breaks the tension. But how they respond, I kind of say, you know, there's three ways to respond to a piece of satire like that. And, and one is uh, laughter, which most people do. The other is laughter and applause, 
you know. And the third is no laughter, just applause, and that's a rally. Yeah. So it's really important that people understand the different, you know, and and if you've got a smart audience, or I like to think I've cultivated enough of a smart audience that they can get where I'm going. But that's earned. That takes a few years and I think a little bit of credit with the audience of knowing who you are sure. and knowing that you're good at comedy. You seem to me to have an incredible sort of agency on stage. I wish I had your confidence in that when you... With such shit material. Yeah. <laughs> when you, you, you... But do you know what I mean by agency? Yeah. And I wonder if it's as a result of old rope or whether you're just a... Com- let's, let's talk a little bit more about old rope sure. because for, for people that don't know, it's sort of the best. It's widely regarded, I think, as the best new material night in Britain. Yeah. And it's every Monday night, and there's a noose on stage, and uh, do people still do... I, last time I was there, I held the noose, because yeah. I was recovering with a joke. The premise of the noose is there's a noose dangling from the stage, and any time you're saying something that you've ever said before, you have to hold on the noose to sort of signify that this bit isn't strictly completely new. Do people still do that? Uh, yes, they do. They okay. do. But it okay. used to be policed in a much sort of heavier sense. Yeah, OK. But um, back in the days, I think when it first started, and Glenn swears he doesn't remember doing this, but Glenn Wall used to stand at the back of the room in a cowboy hat, and if someone did an old joke, he'd start singing Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive over the top of it, (laughs) or Guns N' Roses. So you'd just hear, I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. And you'd be like, okay, that's an old joke then. Um, (laughs) And it was a way of comics policing it. But but at that point, when the room first started, it was just comics. It really was a room of about 10 comics and maybe two punters. So the comics were more interested in seeing each other's fresh material. And then it sort of evolved beyond that. And we started sort of policing the noose and the rope a little bit more. So you still get a few of the old guard who've done rope for years, you know, like a Nick Doody or a Robin Ince or a or a Milton who'd be like, what? why aren't they touching the noose? Why aren't they holding the rope? You know, so, and, and it's, it's up to you as a performer. It's your responsibility. You should be policing that. And, and if you're, you, I mean, you perform there yourself. You either host it or do a set there pretty yeah. much every Monday yes. in the year. Yeah, anything that I've got, I guess, I guess the agency thing, like one of the ways uh, I got good as a comic is watching Rich Hall every week. I mean, Rich Hall has absolutely no pressure it, everything's so easy with rich he can take his time and he's really relaxed and he's relaxed because he knows eventually he'll get to something funny and people will laugh especially when he's working out new stuff and he's unafraid to try things that are theatrically different so watching someone like rich and rich is really interested in comedy. have you ever had him do this uh, not yet no he's, oh, he's sh- agreed i've not yes had him yet. Yeah. you should because because rich is someone who's been on saturday night live you know through to um QI and having his own show and stuff in the States and obviously Mo from The Simpsons is based on Rich Hall. Yeah. So if you didn't have a picture before, now you do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Rich, when he's at the club, he comes, he stands at the bar and uh, my friend Stuart Black said it's like, you know, if Rich isn't there, it's like the Ravens are gone from the Tower <laughs> of London. So he'll stand there in his 10-gallon hat uh, smoking an e-cigarette, which I've told him off for because I said cowboys don't smoke, cowboys don't vape. Everyone knows cowboys don't vape. And he'll stand there and he'll watch everyone. So from the newest person who might be doing the show for the first time right through to whoever's headlining, that's the kind of level of interest that he takes. And I was quite lucky in that sort of Rich and Mike Wilmot took me under their wing a little bit as well and, you know, championed me a little bit, which was really nice. But watching Rich and I guess getting up every Monday and also a little bit of not caring 
there were a few clubs, like regular club gigs, you know, circuit gigs, that didn't book me until after we'd done Show Me the Funny. Mm-hmm. And then, by that point, I was sort of like, well, I don't care if you don't book me again or you don't like me. And I want to do my own tours. Yes. So sometimes going into those sort of club rooms, wherever they are, Glees or wherever, all lovely rooms, but I go in going, let's see what I can do. Let's do something exciting. Yes, because you... I don't have an attachment to the outcome. Okay, because you, A, you're working anyway. Yeah. B, you are getting to do stage time in a fantastic club every Monday that you kind of rule the, you know, yeah. it's, it's your gig. Yeah. Is it, do you run it exclusively yourself now? Is yeah. it you and Phil for a while? It was Phil for a little while, but he dropped out about five years ago. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you've got your gig. And so, yeah, I can see how that would give you a sense that when you approach clubs in which other people might be going, oh, I've got to bring my A game, you, it's not about you not bringing your A game, but you don't feel under pressure to. So yeah. you, you bring with you a sort of built-in sense of this is my house. Yeah. Which is, I think, what I mean by agency. Yeah, and my best performances are when I let go of consequence. And it's the, it's the easiest thing to say and it's the hardest thing to yeah. do. But really, really, when I can get the most of myself out there, as my boyfriend uh, always says, he's like, oh, there's a little bit of you there. There's a little bit of you, and he's like, a bit of Tiff, and that's, you know, that's when you get the spark. That's when they're getting... And, and that can only really be there when I go, all right, guys, let's have some fun, and I come out and I, and I play, and yeah. I've got ideas, I know what I want to say, but how I'm going to do it and what happens in the room is up to us. And so, yeah, exactly that. And, and sometimes, for me, the bigger the thing the less nervous I get. And then sometimes I could be in a small room and get oddly sweaty and panicky and, and I don't know the reason behind that. Okay. <laughs> do, you still, do you still suffer from well, that now? Uh, every now and then. Not so much. I mean, I remember being backstage at Leeds and... Oh, it must have been Reading. Um, Reading Festival with Russell Kane, who was, like, pacing furiously, drinking cans of stuff. And I was just sort of backstage chatting with Paul and, and the lady who was running the tent. And he was like... Oh, God, look at you. Just relax. Just chatting. What are you doing? And I was like, this doesn't help me. <laughs> Whatever you're doing doesn't help me. I would just get het up and upset. In fact, I don't even like to be in the room for too long before the audience come in. Okay. Because then I feel like, or when other acts are on, so I'll come in and watch a little bit, but I don't like to be in for ages because then I pick up stuff that's, you know, sometimes when you go into a gig and someone goes, oh, they're really hard and it's been really awful. Yeah. And you go, if I'm in there, I'll start getting wound up for the other performer. So it's great talking to Tiff. She's so she's got so much to say. She's uh, a really, really, really funny comedian, and and just has a real ability, as I, as I believe I've said earlier in this uh, in this conversation with her, to just take any idea, pull it apart, get loads of angles, loads of stuff to say. Um, you can really learn from her. So uh, I hope you'll get along and see her live. Her show Seven will be going on tour this year, uh, having concluded her run at Edinburgh. So go to her website, which I assume is Tiffany Stevenson or possibly tiffstevenson.com. You can use a search engine. Um, so uh, more from Tiffany in just a second. Uh, I've got some bits and bobs to say to you in the waffle at the end. I'm just going to, I just want to thank you, everyone that came to my run at the Edinburgh Festival. The show Compared to What will tour later this year. And um, I'm just going to... Look, I'm not one for retweeting praise, but, uh, you know, you could skip this bit if you like. I I just thought there were two things in particular out of all of the lovely things people said about my show. And I, I had such a great run at Edinburgh that um, I just wanted to say this. I got this from um, 
Uh, this from Adam. Someone called Adam uh, left this feedback. I saw Stu's show yesterday. This might sound like damning with faint praise, but this was another level up for him. Last year's show was good. This year's show is great. Um, which I quite enjoyed. Because <laughs> I, you know, thanks. I, I thought last year's show was great as well. But um, I went into this one not knowing if it was going to be better, if it was going to be as good. Because obviously this year I had a baby. So a little bit less time to focus on the show. But I'm so pleased that it came together as it did. And... Um, this is the one, this is the one, this is from a guy called Matthew. I went to see Stuart's show on Saturday. It was the first time I had, and I want to confess something. Go on, Matthew, we're interested. He goes on, I always kind of assumed that Stu was an average comedian. Ouch! But, but, listen on, purely because of the success of the podcast and the focus and the hard work that goes into it, as if the podcast was the main event and the stand-up was a small but adequate sideline. My assumption was really wrong. A great show, one of the top five I saw at the Fringe this year, and I'll be sure to go along again to the next one. Thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate your candour. Ow. Um, but I, uh, it's interesting to me because I do worry sometimes that people think that. This podcast has kind of, certainly in its global reach so far, it has, I'm not going to say it's eclipsed my stand-up, but this podcast is increasingly the thing I'm known for. Now, obviously, this show wouldn't make sense if I weren't already a comedian, but I really appreciate you being honest that that's what you, that's, that's what you assumed because the biggest feedback I got from, or I get from people who are fans of this podcast who then come and see my live stand-up is, oh, we're so relieved, that was brilliant. <laughs> and I, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting one because this is, it's an unusual type of podcast, this, isn't it? It's not about me riffing or, or trying to be uh, funny with my guests, although sometimes it, it gets funny, obviously. Um, I just think that I've got a slightly different job to do in order to convert you lot to being fans of my stand-up. Uh, I convert sounds awfully mercenary, but to invite you to become fans of my stand-up because, you know, you might think, well, he's a great interviewer. Uh, that's probably his main thing. So I really appreciate it, Matthew, and, and thanks, Adam, and everyone else that said nice things on uh, on Facebook taking a punt on coming to see the show. And I'm really pleased that you did find out that, um, yeah, 11 years in... I mean, though I say it myself, I'm quite good at stand-up. How British is that for you? I mean, yeah, it was good. What did I get? I think I got eight four-star reviews this year, if you count the Chortle one, which I do, because, sorry, Chortle, I round up. Eight four-star reviews. How uh, how wonderful. Um, and, uh, I mean, what a... God, what a great year. It was so good. Thanks for coming. I will release the show eventually, but it's going to go on tour first. So do come and see it on tour. The tour is going to start in the spring. And there's some exciting news about the tour, which isn't, the ink isn't dry yet. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to wait. Uh, I'm going to wait before I announce anything. But it's been an incredible fringe and, um, lots of really exciting, fun stuff has happened as a result of it. So, uh, I have to be mysterious for now, I'm sorry, I don't want to hex anything by, uh, by sort of being too, uh, too confident about the certainty of certain exciting things happening, but uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of potentially fun stuff in the pipeline, and if you can leave Edinburgh with uh, a bit of potentially fun stuff in the pipeline, then you know you've done your job. Uh, more on that after the episode, but um, I will, I, I've got some thank yous and stuff that I will do at, at the end of this episode, just while I'm waffling on to you. And uh, we will get back to Tiff after this message. Also from me. I said that as if I was, as if that was going to be someone else saying a thing. Um, thank you to your donations. Thanks to everyone that came along um, to uh, the show and, and donated and put some money in the, the free fringe champagne bucket uh, at the end of my show. Um, and also those of you who said, oh, that's for the show. And that's a bit something, uh, a little bit extra for the podcast. Also, some there were some lovely drive-bys. Uh, people coming up and uh, just walking up to me in the street. Someone said, oh, that's, uh, that's that 
20 quid I owe you and waltzed off brilliantly done and one of my favourites from um, all the festivals I worked at this year was uh, a little boy called Ned who wandered over to me uh, and said are you Stuart Goldsmith and I said yes and he said my mum told me to say something cool <laughs> thank you I know you passed me some uh, some a cash donation thank you Ned thank you Ned's mum um and uh, and thank you if you are listening to this and you have yet to donate and you would like to support the podcast you can do that with a recurring donation at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate uh, you can set up uh, one, two, five or even ten pounds a month if you're feeling flush uh, and the, for those of you that would like to just make a one-off donation in support of this show then you can do that I think I think twenty quid's kind of reasonable should we call that the bar? should we call that if you drop I know, I know some of you are students you don't have much money whatever you can afford and if you can't afford anything uh, then simply share it with a friend that is payment enough but if you have got a bit of cash you know you want to give me what you'd buy someone for a baby present or as much as you'd spend on a bottle of wine or any of these other lovely things that I try and do to help you visualise what the podcast might be worth to you go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate and you can send me a token of your esteem and I'll be profoundly grateful thank you to everyone that's done that so far a uh, bit more chat afterwards but now let's get back to the brilliant Tiff Stevens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Now you mentioned Show Me The Funny yeah. You're uh, only the second guest I've had on this podcast Who went through the, that uh, experience uh, with me And for those that don't know Show Me The Funny was five years ago maybe four or 2011 five Jeepers So it's a show on ITV And it was billed as MasterChef for comedians And it actually was oh, a Oh was bit... it billed to MasterChef well, to you Because I got The yeah, Apprentice That's what they said to me Oh The Apprentice, fine Or, it, or X Factor it, Well then it sort of became X Factor for comedians Now <laughs> I, I've said before on this show Whenever I've mentioned it obliquely um, I struggled enormously with that process. I found it really hard work and it made me really unhappy doing it. You were like an absolute fish to water <laughs> and I think you should have won it. With all due respect to Patrick, who I think is a great comedian, I think Patrick Monaghan's brilliant to what he does, he didn't write a single joke throughout the entire process. He just went on and improvised every night brilliantly. Whereas yeah. you applied yourself to the challenge and were it MasterChef for comedians, you would have won had they been rigorous about that because... You, and you'd have had a hundred grand in your pocket. Would have had a hundred grand. Did you feel that? Uh, do you know what? I didn't really. Uh, everyone else around me felt it much more. It's really interesting because my dad was furious. <laughs> and on the night, he just stormed out of the hammers with Apollo. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. You, you came, was there an official second oh, or third? Oh, I came or was last. It just I came, well, last. I came third. Okay, okay. So it was, it was Patrick, Dan, then me. Yeah. Um, but on the night, I did think like, oh, yeah, I had the gig. Yeah. Not that you can go, I had the gig, you know, because it's all... 
You can't. On this show, you can say... Yeah, I like, I thought I did on the night. I thought, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I've done... But then I went on first and then came last. And yeah. sort of first on, soonest forgotten. I don't know. I mean, they go, and, and also the public vote and the public just liked what Pat did more. More yes. people rang and, and voted for him. But I think um, my dad was, yeah, my dad was furious. I was sort of a bit disappointed, but then I was also like, oh, I got to play the Apollo on TV. Uh-huh. And I got some money for that. And I knew I would get some money to do this sort of DVD that they were going to do in a tour. So really, um, again, it's the other thing of letting go a bit of it. Uh, because I already had these nice things lined up afterwards, that became less important whether sure. I won that or not. Also, I'd been throwing up heavily the day before. Okay. Um, and food poisoning. <laughs> uh, well, but I also had been drinking for a month in Edinburgh, so that could have been part of it as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, they shot um, it just after Edinburgh, didn't they? Yeah, do you remember? But do you remember me being quite like... No, it was during Edinburgh, so I got a train up. But I'd been throwing yeah. up the night before, like, loads. Okay. Um, and then the ne- like, I was just happy to not be throwing up. So that came across. That's I think. a great just, energy to have on stage. Just I'm just to... glad I'm not vomiting, ladies and gentlemen. Because I, I, I was the second for it. I was the backup in yes, case Dan had epilepsy. Yeah. And in case he had a fit, I was on standby. And they didn't need me in the end. But while they were setting the room up, they said, uh, OK, can you just go and stand in your spot just in case, practice your entrance? So I'm doing it in front of six cameramen. And I said, look, I'm here. Can I just do my set? And they went, yeah, sure. So I did my set and I recorded it in my thing. I was like, Stuart Goldsmith at the Apollo. Recorded it like this. So literally, you can hear cameramen coughing in the back. Background. And <laughs> bless her, Kate Copstick laughing as she was sat in the thing like the one actual punter. Yeah. But the um, I, I thought throughout the whole of the process, throughout the, for the very I thought incredibly tense. You know, they were so the, the job was you've got to you've got to write five minutes of absolutely brand new material in two and a half days, and then you perform it on the Wednesday night, and it's about some sort of challenge. That's what I was expecting. It's about yes. the environment in which yeah. you, you find yourself, and the. What transpired was they then, oh, right, actually, you've got to busy yourself doing a load of sort of challenges. Running around the streets of Liverpool shouting Michelle. Scavenger hunts. Don't know if anyone saw it. No. No, well, there we Uh, (laughs) go. But, um, but, so I found that really frustrating. But when it came to actually spotting things, it was like, I mean, it really was. The part of it that really worked for me, not that we saw a great deal of that in the finished product, but the part of it that really worked was the idea of putting someone in a new environment, like when we're in the hospital. Yeah. And you had an absolutely belting gig that week because you came out and you did material. And I remember you did a bit about, there was a chart on the wall which showed the, the relative light or darkness of urine. And oh, what, there was, oh, was the it Bristol stools? stool the chart. The Bristol stool chart. I compared all the men in the hospital to the Bristol stool chart. That was absolutely... <laughs> some medical people in <laughs> really appreciating that. That was inspired. And I came away from that gig thinking, A, oh, God, I saw that. Why didn't I do that? And B, I couldn't have done that. The, the way that you took, like, here's an established thing which everyone knows about. And, you know, but, you know within, within the confines of the hospital, you know, this, this stool chart, everyone would have heard of it. And you took that and you knitted it with the concept of the men in the department and how they behave. And it was like a... Br- I just remember really being struck by what a brilliant example it was of... Um, playing to an audience without pandering to an audience. Sure. Like, you really nailed that bit. And I thought that was really typical of how you applied yourself to the process. So I'm just wondering, in a wider kind of a context, what things are you looking for when you write material in, a, in an attempt to, like, like when you say with material on race or identity, big, yeah. big subjects that you approach with total faith in your ability to, to handle those subjects? What, what kind of rules do you have? What sort of structure is there in your mind for how you, take, um, how you take something specific and apply it to something else? Do you know what I mean? You smash yeah. the two ideas together. Um, 
Oh, I don't know. I, that was I, an incredibly long question. Yeah. Thank you for bearing with it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I've got an, a routine in my new show at the moment. Um, I've got a bit about sort of the phrase barely legal. And at first, just sort of seeing a sign for that when I was in America and kind of being outraged at the idea that this was still a thing, the phrase barely legal. Okay. And... Uh, and in the beginning, I was just angry about it. I was like, how is that? And that was the first time I did it on stage. But because I've got the opportunity at Old Rope to come out and just go, well, I'm just angry about that, and I'll write a joke about it later on. Okay. When I can separate myself from it a little bit, and then it came, and I was like, why don't we just start calling it what it actually is, almost pedo. You know, like, and, and then I sort of start going down the line of kind of onwards from there and, and picking that apart um, and then going, what does this mean for society in general as a bigger thing? So for that routine, I was like, what does this mean? Uh, the fact that this phrase is in common parlance and we got this Barely Legal magazine and Barely Legal Strip Club is what it was. Larry, Larry Flint's Barely Legal Strip Club. What does that say about society? What does that say about girls growing up? What does it say about the objectification of women? And this kind of narrative around girls at that sort of age, that they're ripe fruit that somehow needs to be plucked which has now gone into a greater routine about consent and the fact that we hold sports stars up and it appears that they can get away with anything when it comes to women as long as they're good at a sport so that is a whole quite heavily about you know consent and and uh you know rape and sexual harassment and so it's quite a heavy heavy thing so then i have to try and I want to talk about it, but then I have to try and weave the jokes in and, you know, make all of those steps. And the only way to do it really is trying it on stage and trying it on stage. So like okay. the Jack Daniels routine, that was... Chris Rock says a great thing about it. You know, if people are filming you on their phones, it kind of creatively crushes the process because there's a few times you get it wrong and you go, oh, no, I didn't quite nail that there. And they might have thought I meant this. Mm -hmm. And they might have thought I was victim-blaming and when I wasn't, when I was actually doing, you know. So it's just sort of finding that balance um, and knowing that your thinking is on the right side and what you want to say. Okay. But, uh, but I don't know, for something like uh, the Bristol stool chart, which is a, ostensibly a silly... I like. I think it was maybe I thought I just want to talk about people and the people that I'd met, and then spotted the guys and like. I was like, some of them are quite smooth and charming, and some of them are, you know. I, then I met the orderly who was like, I think he was like a type one or a type five. I can't remember which way round it is a type one, uh, hard lump, difficult to pass because he was this giant bloke. Um, so <laughs> it just sort of came out, and one was like like a crack sausage. I mean, there's like there's. there's very descriptive and i just went wow it's almost like you're describing people so i think i just saw that okay um in terms of meshing but with something heavier or darker in content like the the sort of stuff about race um it's interesting because i had like <laughs> with last year's show i got like it was probably my best show in edinburgh my best run and review wise and everything it was like i had a really lovely time and a, a great year um but if they didn't get it they really didn't there was one person who went well, she does all this stuff about feminism, which I get because she's a woman. But then she does stuff about stuff about black men in America, and like, why is she talking about that? And like, if you don't get that it's about equality generally, then I can't help you. You're an idiot. <laughs> so, but it was a real like. But she's got expertise in these. Stick to what you know, love. Almost that. Like, kind of okay. stick to. You're a woman, and you're white. So don't come outside that comfort zone. And I'm like, I'll go where I want, and you'll follow me. If I get it right, you'll follow me. Okay. And where does that... Were you, did you always have that amount of self-belief before you became a comic? 
Um, is that learned or is that is that innate? No, I think I'm probably quite a, a confident person. I think if anything, sort of comedy initially crushed it a bit, really. Yeah. Because when I first started doing stand up, it was quite a different scene for women, sort of ten years ago, probably as you know, than it is now. Um, I think there were always a lot of women in the audience, but I think promoters just so tedious and boring. But they made it really hard, and you always felt like you were auditioning. Okay. To be on it, and I remember going and doing rooms where I would be on with guys who'd been going the same amount of time as us, and they'd get booked for their paid work, and I'd have a good gig, and then I'd have to go back and do like five more just to show. So I think if anything, com- like my confidence probably smashed out of me a little bit. But I, 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 I've always been confident in terms of performing and being in front of an audience because you know I've had the acting side of things. But I guess I know my own mind more in my thirties. I think that's why comedy gets better as you get older because you know who you are, you know what your thoughts are and it's less about, you know, it's not about what do other people think, it's about what do I think. Yeah, yeah. it's funny actually getting, having done comedy a little while now and so it's the same 10 or 11 years, it, it, I don't know if you, maybe this is a, sort of too peripheral, but do you ever have a thing of seeing a much younger comic, given how young people start now, yeah. seeing someone who's maybe 18 or 19 and going, oh, you're good, you've got... You're going to be really good. Yeah. As soon as you can stop doing all this childish bullshit you think we want to hear about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, it's really interesting to see what routes people will take. Like when I did Roadshow in Melbourne, I was on with a young guy, Neil Kolhatka. Oh, I gigged with Neil the other night at Top Secret. Right, yeah. Yeah. And he's really, like, I felt quite protective of him because he's like 18. Sure. Or 19 when we took him on Roadshow. Okay. And he was very much sort of a YouTube sensation at that point. And now he's really kind of getting his chops a bit. And yeah. I, I watched him at Top Secret the other night. And that was really lovely to watch because it kind of looked like it might go one of two ways. Because you sort of watched his routines. And I was like, it's a little, that sort of edging towards a bit of misogyny there. So maybe, you know, and he had that sort of path where you go, I can do really interesting kind of go down that sort of Chris Rock road. Or I might go down this dapper laughs uh, and he didn't you know um, and it wasn't like it was anywhere like that but I was kind of like oh it's, it's he's very young and he doesn't quite know and we had one conversation where um, and you forget how young someone is we were talking about Iggy Azalea not a fan as you would have seen <laughs> on the show but he said to me what I really like about Iggy is that you know she's a rapper that owns her own sexuality she's the first woman who's come out and I was like <laughs> little Kim <laughs> I'm going to have to go through them all now Missy Elliott um, and you just forget that that's like a generation of stuff um, but I think but now he's kind of learning who he is a bit more on stage and yeah he smashed it at Top Secret the other night and I remember Sean Walsh came over and he was like is this, is this kid worth watching I was like he is actually you know he's got really good ideas I haven't seen him for a little while you know I saw him do a bit at Rope that I thought was great and then he watched him and he was like oh yeah he's really great how, mm-hmm. how do you how do you feel as, a, as an act just, just while we're talking about age how do you feel getting older in comedy becoming more mature in comedy because now that we've done it for long in, like, like you've dedicated a good decade yeah. to this it's weird like it's, it's never anything I anticipated I thought well hopefully I'll keep getting better and hopefully I'll the money will keep going up <laughs> does it but <laughs> um, but something I'm really experiencing at the moment is kind of people regard one differently because right. they go oh you've been doing it for a bit longer they, they sort of ask your opinion in a way that you wouldn't expect them to and I just I'm not even quite sure what the question is I'm just sort of wondering how is it getting older as a comic um, are, are there, are there, what, are the, what are the what are the benefits what are the advantages for having gone for a while not that I'm calling I just, us old <laughs> <laughs> 30s guys we're not 30s um, I think 
you just, I I've think just realised it was my birthday this week and I'm 39 and that's why it's on my mind. So feel free to, <laughs> to say this from the point of view of someone younger than I. Um, I think uh, just the older you get, the better you get. You've only got to look at people like, you know, Rich Hall and Joan Rivers and some of those guys who are out there, you know, Louis C.K., like really flourishing and coming into their own in their sort of... 40s you know and then their 50s and 60s and beyond and that's a great thing about Joan Rivers is that she had this sort of amazing work ethic that right up until the end she was still going doing new material yeah every week at this little club in New York this little basement and she'd get up and go I just I gotta get the jokes out you know and if they <laughs> there's <laughs> the, Joan yeah the spirit of Joan <laughs> the Vi- spirit of Joan is in a peacock, peacock outside the room um so I I love that about her but here's the weird thing I mean you get a bit more respect, you get a bit more credit, but then you also realise that this... You kind of go... You, th- you think there's a point where you go, oh, can I just relax now? Is it done? Can I take my foot off the gas and let my agent do it? Or can I take my foot off the gas and let the momentum take me? And uh, will I not have to have the fight still once I'm there? And actually, the fights never end. There's a great bit in the Joan Rivers documentary. Uh, it's called A Piece of Work. And it documents the year she came to Edinburgh and sort of did a bit of a play... And it's a year in her life, and she's sort of trying to get back. She's on her way back up again. And they ask her to host a roast on Comedy Central, which... um, Not to host, sorry, to be the subject of a roast. Okay. So, and she's kind of like, oh, it sounds a bit trashy. And then they're like, no, you're on Comedy Central. And she was like, I don't work that channel. I mean, I'm going to do it. And uh, she comes on to the... um, She comes on to the set. They're doing a rehearsal. And she comes on with, like... 10 different kids, all different races. And then she goes, Brad and Angelina are having a garage sale. (laughs) (laughs) Great joke. Great joke. Right. Everyone in the room cracks it up. And then she walks to the throne because you sit on a throne uh, for the roast. And as she sits down, she does a pratfall and falls off the throne. And then sort of just this, this producer just sort of appears out of nowhere he must be 30-something. He goes, no, no, Joan, 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 Joan. You can't fall off the throat. You can't fall off it because you see what's going to happen is the audience are going to give you a standing O and, you know, you can't do that because they're going to think that you've hurt yourself. And she's like, oh, my God, please don't kill every joke before I do it like that. And he's like, no, Joan, you can't. She was like, I'm doing the joke. But then she literally has to go <laughs> like... Don't tell me how a joke will play. Yeah. The joke will play. I'm Joan Rivers. I've been doing it 60 years. Don't tell me how a joke's going to play. And you, there's a guy there, producer who's 30-something, and you're like, oh, wow, it, the battle never ends. Yeah. That sort of struggle uh, creatively and between the perception and, and people giving you credit to know what you're doing. You know, and I find that happens far less with women as well. I think sometimes you'll see a woman on stage who is being... Uh, clowny or silly and you know you might you might have someone like uh, Holly Byrne mm-hmm. or Lou Sanders and then on the other side you've got your, your sort of John Kearns and Sam Simmons and stuff like that and I think a lot of the time when women come out and do that or if you go somewhere dark and you lose them and you get them back or you want to do something that's a bit ranty or you want to do something that's a kind of big sort of metaphor in the middle of your show um, critics and less so much audience I guess but think that you don't know what you're doing if you're a woman they think oh she's lost them she doesn't know 
Um, so definitely with the sort of clowny stuff, they go, oh, they're just a bit batshit, aren't they? They're a bit mental. Yeah, Whereas they'll okay. go, Sam Simmons, I will give you, John Kearns, I will give you, you know. And they're all brilliant. They're all brilliant acts, but the women seem to get less credit. It's almost yes. as if like, and also charm. <laughs> there's, a, there's a thing they do quite a lot in, re- in reviews of women. You get charming is one, chatty. Uh-huh. Chatty, gossipy, and you go, how dare you? This is like stuff that I've written. Um, you yeah, know. it's like bossy, isn't it, in the workplace, calling a woman bossy, whereas a man she... exhibiting the same behaviour yeah. would be called strong or, you know, leadership qualities. Yeah, this qualities, is a uh, phenomenal stand-up from a guy, and he makes it look so easy, but it's really phenomenal stat where they'll just go, oh, she's quite charming, she's chatty, and you go, no, give me the credit. I wrote this, this, this actually takes work. This isn't given as read. So, um, and I think that, that was sort of shown in that Joan Rivers bit where they were like, even with all of that work and career behind her, she was still having to be scrappy. The producer and... tells her she can't do a joke. Yeah, yes, right. yeah. And is that, so when you, you became quite animated there, is that a criticism that's been levelled at you? Uh, I think it's been, I think we've all, I think all the female comics have had it. I mean, we've definitely, it's des- definitely been discussed. Like, it's definitely been said about me, uh, Roisin Coronet, Kerry Godleyman, um, any of the Holly, like Catherine, Sarah, everyone's had like chatty or would like to go for a glass of wine with, would like to go for a coffee with, or you know that kind of thing. Almost as if we're just like someone that you might just want to hang out with, rather than a person doing a job in front of an audience. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had it before, like bubbly, effervescent. You know, oh, it's like she's just chatting away in a room. I once had a. a TV producer say to me and he's lovely and it's someone that I've worked with but I was just like I cannot believe you've just said that sentence to me he's like what I like about your stand up is it's sort of like like it's almost like you're leaning over a garden wall just having a good old <laughs> gossip and I was like what did you what, what did you just say to me and he went yeah just like and I was like like a fishwife is that what you're saying <laughs> is that what you're saying to me so yeah, yeah. that so that does you know, and I don't think they realise, and it's it's normally male reviewers that uh, commit that kind of sin. And you um, don't think they know they're doing it? I don't know which is worse. I don't know whether, whether it's... Uh, yeah, I think yeah. it's part of an inherent... Some, you know, that needs to change to go, actually, we're women, we're here, we're doing a job, uh, you know. And do you think it is changing? You mentioned the difference in the landscape of comedy and, and women in comedy in the last ten years from when you started. yeah. Do you think it is changeable within our lifetimes or is it just that it's a case of chipping away at it? Um, I think it's moving. In my opinion, it's moving way too slow. I'm, not, I'm still not seeing the equal representation. Um, and so the, the ruling changed things a bit. Obviously it did, you know. Um, and I the, do, by the ruling, you mean the... The one woman. One woman on each. But sometimes... the BBC ruling. The BBC ruling, and it's not for Channel 4, you know. Um, so it's just a BBC thing where they, they said, we need at least one woman on a panel show. Um, it probably should just be half. Because uh, the, the thing about it is, is I always say this, is like, if there's a girl watching at home and she sees me on Mock the Week, for example, she thinks that that's a valid career choice for her. But if I'm not there, if I'm not represented, then how is that next girl, the next generation, if you can see it, you can be it, you know, how are they going to know that that's something they can achieve or attain if they don't see me there? And then also the problem with being the one comes that you then represent all women rather than just representing yourself, 
you know, I don't want to represent all women, I want to represent this woman. Plus, knowing that that's kind of a public uh, system, yeah. you know, knowing it's publicly known, yeah. this sort of the potential for accusations of tokenism. Yes. Or, you know, like, uh, you know, as a woman, can you feel like I've earned my place on this show? Or do you feel like, well, they needed a woman because yeah. they've gone and made that yeah. thing public? I mean, could that have been handled better? Do you broadly agree with it? I, as think, a- it ne- I think it needed to be said because I think it had been encouraged and encouraged and encouraged and people didn't take it on. So I think say it. I think it's fine. I just think it should have been more. I think it should have been at least two. Let's go half. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You know, and also women, we... Um, uh, we respond to each other differently. That's a different dynamic. I just think, you know, get the gender balance right and then go for equality across the whole show. So d- just to have a, a mix of voices because it's more interesting. Mm. If you've got five men who are like 40-something and white with similar backgrounds, how different is that going to be? How much comedic value can you get out of that as opposed to if you get someone who's working class, if you get someone who's not white, if you get a woman, you know, to start actually, then it becomes more interesting to me because you're getting a range of voices, I think. You know, that's... that's but I, and I think there are lots of people that feel the same. But yeah, the, I think it needed to be said, and I don't think I got there because because of tokenism. I think I, you know, I worked hard and I've been doing it. You know, for example, with something like Mock the Week, I think I did that for the first time in 2014, and I definitely think I could have done it before then. Mm-hmm. Or definitely the boys that I came through with were doing it. Yeah. Before then. And what with a show like Mock the Week, do you? Do you feel a similar sense of agency and control of your own destiny? Do you feel as powerful behind the panel, but you know, on the desk on Mock the Week, as you do doing your own show? Um, it's different. It's different because you obviously can't control the edit, and you can't control what happens with everyone else in the room. So it's it's much more like acting. You're kind of in in a little bit more of a collaborative situation. But I think Dara is very good at refereeing it and making sure people get their stuff in and I think the atmosphere on the show is quite changed and it feels it feels a, a, like a bit of a different show uh, than it did five six years ago sure. for example or seven years ago um, and so I think it feels it feels fun you know people who've done it for a long time that have noticed the change lines up line up say it sort of feels more fun now I definitely don't have the same sense of agency because it's it's quite high pressure you know there's a lot of news you've got to think up stuff for all the news stories you're sort of cooking stuff in your head uh and you know no one knows what anyone's gonna say or or what their angle or what they feel about things you know and so therefore you're you're kind of you can prepare yourself as much as you can get across stories and go i've got funny ideas about these and then you know so i have less control also by doing it you know i'm not uh i think i'm doing it in autumn That'll be the first time I've sort of done it in the summer and the autumn one. Um, and I think the more you do it, just the more you get your feet under the table and more you feel like part of the furniture. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of telly across the board, women have not been allowed to feel that way. Yeah. And I think that is what needs to change and should change so that we can get as comfortable as the guys are going, I know this, I know this room, I know this vibe, I know this audience. I remember the first time I did Never Mind the Buzzcocks, Phil Jupiter's lent across to me and went, listen, it's really important with this audience that you know they're so cold if they don't know you. Mm-hmm. So cold if they don't know you off the start. And he was like, so if they don't respond to a joke, just keep punting it out. Just keep punting it out. And it was the best piece of advice because I did a couple of jokes 
that were quite good but didn't get as much as I thought they would get. And I was like, oh, they were really good jokes. And then I just remembered what he said. But if I didn't know that, I probably would have just, you know, yeah. in your first couple of bits, if they don't land in stand-up when you're on stage, you're like, oh, this is going to be, I've got to change gears, this is going to be work. So, so I think, um, yeah, doing something like Mock is quite nice. Like the last one I did, I did with Nish. And that was great. I was on with Nish and Ed and we all know each other and we have a rapport and we can kind of make fun of each other. So it's just the, a sense of feeling relaxed enough in the environment. Yes. Is there, I, I've always imagined, having not done Mock the Week, I've always imagined that you've got your notes in front of you. There's like the, the record's about three hours plus? Yes. So is there the fear that you've got a, your best joke on a subject, you've got to get it out quick because someone else might have taken a very similar angle? Uh... Yeah, if you write similarly to the other people that's on. Yeah. Which is why it's good to have a real spread of people. Yes, Because sure. then everyone's coming at it from another angle. And uh, you, I don't really worry about that that much because I'm coming at it from a female perspective. Though I don't always think in a female way, but I do tend to think, oh, okay, I, I'm, maybe that other person doesn't have this. Cause it, say, sure. for example, the Andrea Ledsom sort of thing that just come up, you know. Uh, which was, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I, I wrote a joke which was around that. It, it, it basically, she said that uh, Theresa May didn't have as much of a stake in the future of Britain as her because she didn't have kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, as we all know, empathy only comes with vaginal tearing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So, yeah, probably Ed Gamble isn't going to go with that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to come at it from a very direct female perspective sure. um, and also for me that's one of my sort of big bugbears and it's sort of stripped across my comedy is is kind of wound botherers so regardless of where <laughs> is the phrase i use for it but whether it's a, a a parent telling me that i won't understand things until i'm a parent or that they are automatically a better person because they're a parent and they care more uh, or it's someone restricting my reproductive rights. That's a big thing that I have, you know. So that's obviously going to come through the filter of Tiffany and come out. For example, the last Mock the Week, there was a whole section on Trump. And, uh, like, obviously, I, you know, I pers it personally lands with me when, when Trump says, you know, women should be punished for having an abortion. And uh, as I said on Mock, I was like, well, I think his mum should have been punished for not having one. You know, so that... that is going to come from a very personal, these things, are, they feel like more barbs than, you know, maybe they do for the guys. I'm not saying they don't land or they don't feel them, but, you know, Nish and I were kind of there going, well, yeah, I'm not white, she's a woman, we're not his favourite people. And the others were like, oh, of course, because we're fine with him. We're like, yeah, but we've got another little level of yes. sort of anger at someone like Trump. Yes. Is there, and, and I should say, we, we will have to wrap up fairly soon. Um, if it's all right with you, I will sure. uh, throw to the audience for some questions, if anyone does have a question. But while you're thinking of one, I've got another one. So if, you, if there is one, feel free to cook one up and we might come to you shortly uh, before we wind up. Um, but I, I just wanted to pursue that idea for a moment. The idea of, because I know you write a lot of topical jokes, and I guess because you're turning over a, a huge volume of material with, with uh, Old Rope, as well as, you know, the demands of writing a new tour show every year. And um, is it... I'm not a big topical joke writer. Do you find... I mean, it, it must be difficult, I always think, with Twitter. As soon, I'm sure comedians 
get up deliberately early to get the papers first to try and get the tweet out there that's going to manage to combine the concept of Theresa May and Pokemon Go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Whichever yeah, the most, yeah. the most yeah. uniquely Googleable terms of today. News, go, get it, to get the, the tweet that gets all the retweets. She's the first mysterious creature you'll find. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I know, because I'm not, I'm not a mad Twitter... I do tweet, and I do sometimes have funny tweets, and I'll sometimes put out something, but I'm not a Twitter comic because I'm not a short-form comic. So I'm going to cook on it a bit longer and do a longer sort of thing about it. So if it's a pun-based thing or a one-linery or a something, I'm probably not your, sure. your guy. But, um, but, in, but in terms of do you need... When you're talking about the the big subjects, I know who I am, so that is my f- gotcha. right. So for for topical for something like mock the week, I know how I feel about a thing. So that's my, which is why it can be crippling in a way to get success really early when you don't know your voice, because then you're on, taking on board all these other ideas and opinions. So like I said earlier, I, I think about how I feel uh, about a thing, and then. Um, uh, you know, then I'll go from that point onwards. So, and if I don't, if it's not from my, if it's not from my gut, how I feel about this thing, then I probably won't tweet about it or okay. write a joke. But, 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 but presumably, but you're able to. I mean, there are some writing jobs in comedy. I'm sure you yeah. must have done where someone said, "That's the topic. What have you got?" Are you then able to kind of, if you don't, if it's something you don't care about, if someone like I've no idea about your feelings on Grand Prix, I couldn't give a toss. Right, but. You know, if I said you've got to come up with a Grand Prix joke, what's your route into it if you have no personal investment in it? Yeah, I would probably go... I'd probably think about... I'd, well, go straight in on Lewis Hamilton because he's the most boring man alive. So that's <laughs> okay. where I would start. Um, uh, so I would start with Lewis Hamilton. I'd probably look at how much money spent on the sport and then be honest about... I do like a bit of the old... whizzy car. Uh, <laughs> so just off the top of my head, I'd be like, oh, it's expensive and it seems ridiculous in times like these. And I'm, I would probably look at the, the wealth aspect of it and then drill down into that. Okay. But I would still come at it from like, how do I feel? Even if I feel nonchalant about sure. it, even if I'm not that bothered. But I do watch it when it's on the TV because I like listening to the drivers go, my back end's out, eyes oh, all over my back end. And that just makes me laugh as a child. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so, um, so, so yeah, I'm always coming. If, if I don't care about it, then I'll say, I don't care about this. Yeah, and then that becomes an angle of yes, itself. Yeah, why don't you care? Yeah, what is it that turns you off about thing. it? Okay, that's I'm a really good answer. Thank yeah, you. you know, I don't, but but uh, and to come back to the thing of um, sort of progress and, and women, just because we touched briefly upon it, uh, sometimes uh, I've come to think about it in a different way because there's been really really hard. You probably know, like where you want to give up comedy or where you think it's not going or you feel like you're not reaching that next level and you're like, am I where I should be? And you look at other people and then you realise it's that the least helpful thing you can do is look at someone else's career because everyone's on a different, like stay in your lane. <laughs> Don't yeah. look at the other cars because they might be going a different direction or they may be going faster and there than is you. No, there's no such, there's no such thing as lanes. We're not yeah. all on, we didn't all start on day one and go yeah. you know, in the same yeah. direction or anything. Or with yeah. a handicap. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> with his golf. But, uh, but um, so in some ways, I'm grateful for the times I got held back um, because it made me better. So I feel that there's a bit of a fight that's maybe part of my agency that goes, no, I've really had to... Um, I think arrested development can happen with people if they have success really early. I mean, mine's been like really gradual. My mm. sort of ascent has been slowly, 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 catchy monkey, slowly, slowly. And um, I, if I sort of look around... I think that's why there's so many brilliant women at the moment as well. Um, now, I've talked about this with my friend Alice, who's in the audience, who's also a comic. But yeah... Uh, 
because we've been sort of held back. So we've had to get to a point where it's undeniable. You can't deny it. You can't deny that this is good. Uh, it just in order to get through. So, and, and, and in some ways I'm grateful because it made me better. Made me have to try harder. I couldn't just be good. I had to be better than good, if that makes sense. I'm just going to throw, just see if there are any questions. There's one at the back. Um, and yeah, we've just got time for probably one. I'm going to try. I'm not entirely sure of the tone of that question, but I'm going to, I think the, the meat of it is we've talked a lot about the first 10 years. Um, and so let's talk about the, the second 10 years. What is the next decade going to look like for you? And what are you anticipating is going to be uh, the, the pitfalls, the challenges of the next decade? Um, I'm trying to view it all as art. So anything that I think stand-up is definitely art. So when I come up with ideas, I'm a bit freer now. Is that going to be an article that I want to write? Is that going to be a sketch? Is that going to be a piece of stand-up? So I'm just enjoying creating and coming up with things and working with people. And in terms of sort of diversity within the industry, I think the reason it's always on my mind a little bit is it's easy to think that it's gone away because you're doing well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to think there's not a problem because you don't have a problem. And so I, th I think it's always important to be vigilant against that. So even though I'm doing things, it doesn't mean that it's better for all women. So, and it's not necessarily my job to make it better for all women, but I always have a little bit of an eye on that. I don't think there will always be the same, the battles with the same gatekeepers because you care about them less. I don't care about the promoters of the clubs because I do my own tour. So there are no gatekeepers for that. There are people that want to come and see me do my tour show. I do the tour show. But um, is, is there the same battle to be had in terms of the TV gatekeepers to meet the right people in TV and impress the right people? And would, do you anticipate having to go... I mean, I, I know you have a, yeah. a fairly extensive TV CV, but... Do you anticipate similar challenges as you go, okay, the next thing, if it's global touring or the next thing, it's uh, a bigger TV or getting your own TV show? Are you anticipating the same sorts of challenges of having to be better and having to knock down the door? Um, I think I'm less about trying to knock down the door and prove it and to go, I'll just go and find another door. I will just go find another door or I'll build my own. <laughs> um, and that's sort of, I've, I've never been afraid of kind of trying to, you know, I've done that with Old Rope, I'll build my own. So if, if, if you're not going to, if you're closing the door in my face, it's fine, I'll go round you. I'll write a script, you know, I've done that. I'll, I'll film something. It's, it's easier than ever to get your stuff out there. So these gatekeepers are less and less important, I guess, is the answer to your question. They, they mean less. There are things that I would like to do and I try and think, if I get offered a thing, I think, would I like to do this? Will, this, will I find this fulfilling? Um, and I'd like to get to the point, which I think may, is maybe Tim Ferriss' podcast that we heard this on, um, but there was an interview with someone like maybe like Jamie Foxx, and it was, um, if it's not a yes, then if it's not an immediate yes, then it's a no. And I think that's a really nice point to get to you in your career. If you don't instantly go, yep, then it's a no. If you have to think about it, if it has to become, what are the pitfalls of this? What are the things? Just what do I want to do? And if it's yes, then it's a yes. So unless it's a me, and I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. You know, I was just uh, reflecting <laughs> on whether I'm there yet. There's just something in my inbox at the moment, and I'm going, oh, I suppose, and I don't know if I can afford for it just to be no. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. It's, it's being able to afford to get to that point. And I think, I don't think there are the same pitfalls in the same way, because like I say, I think you can go out there, you can create your own thing. You can, a lot of the best stuff I've got has actually been through something that I've started or created, you know, like doing the weekly in Australia was because I took myself to the Adelaide Fringe. 
I did all of that. I think I didn't have an agent at the time because I'd left my last agent or maybe I'd just signed with Avalon. Um, and I took myself to the Adelaide Fringe and I worked there, Rhino Room there, that little room. And that was where Charlie saw me and he was like, I think you're my favourite comedian that I've ever seen on stage. And then we sort of kept in contact and then he was like, I'm going to be doing this show, you know, um, would you be up for doing it? And I said, yes, and I didn't think anything would come of it. Then it did, you know. Um, I've written a thing which is in at Radio 4 at the moment, which we're waiting to see if we're going to get a pilot. But that was just a thing I came up with myself and went, I want to pitch this, you know. So I think that that is definitely changing. And if it doesn't go on Radio 4, I'll make it myself. So the gatekeepers don't matter in the same way anymore. It's nice that they have an audience and they have a reach, but if it doesn't go that way, I'll do it another way. So I'm quite keen on on creating projects and doing stuff, in thinking about doing things in a different way. I may just have time for one question. I'm just going to sneak this one in and then we must, uh, we must finish. But if your, um, if your superpowers, if your strengths are your agency, your work ethic, your confidence, your joke writing ability, what would you say are your weaknesses? What are the areas that you want to, to fix up that you might spend the next 10 years working on? What are the, what are the things you see other people do and go, I, just, I, I wish I could be a little bit more like that? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm You're allowed ma- for the answer to be nothing. That's fine. <laughs> based on how confident um, you are. No, because I think if you... I, I'm pretty confident with the stuff I do, but I think when you think you've got it nailed is no. There's always work. There's always getting better. Every year I want to do a better show in Edinburgh than I did the year before. Sure. So you go, how can I... You know, and this year I've very specifically sat down and gone through recordings of the show going, is that the best version of that routine? Is that the best way that I can make it? Is that the best... Um, what do I need to get better at? I I know, I think I've got better at this. Um, uh, but I used to, this is a thing that I used to do loads when I started and when I was doing club gigs and Paul used to come to clubs with me and we'd be backstage and I'd have a good gig and uh, the promoter would come off and go, um, uh, yeah, it was really great. And I was like, yeah, but they didn't laugh at this one thing. Uh, and I messed up that routine on the, and he's looking at me going, shut up, just shut up, just shut up. <laughs> because your instinct is to, you're, you're telling that, you know, and then you're resetting it. You in want their to mind. acknowledge that you want to go, yeah, you, yeah, it was good, but we both know that bit dipped. And, and they hey, don't I, know. I get it. And they don't know. They don't yeah, know. Right. That's the point. And you're there trying to go, uh, you know, um, so, so there's, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of trying not to unpick it to the point that you talk yourself into having, had a terrible gig um and then uh, i guess letting go i'd like to be better at letting go of the stuff that i can't control and not letting that dig into me or affect me and go i can control my bit i can't there's other things outside of that that i can't so i'd like to get better i like to feel less hurt by things to not take things so personally um if you know i want a thing and i don't get a thing and i you know I, I think with anything, with a career, with it, there's that old saying, isn't it, where the love is like a butterfly that sits in the palm of your hand and it will sit there quite happily until you try and close it and the minute you do that, it will fly away. So a bit of letting go and trying to manage it a bit less, I think. And maybe being a bit freer. It's difficult, though, because I write a show and I'm really happy with the show that I've written. So if I just hop off script and went, I'm just going to get up for an hour and do what I want, I kind of get the chance to do that at Old Rope a bit, I guess it's hard I don't that's a really long winded not very interesting answer to that question then we'll wrap up with it it's a good answer we'll wrap up with this last one you can interpret this however you want what would you have written on your comedy gravestone 
dead funny has someone said that before <laughs> you can has have that the entire thing yeah. dead funny brackets has someone said that before yeah <laughs> ladies and gentlemen please join me in thanking Tiff Stevenson <laughs> So that was Tiff. Thank you very much to Tiffany for coming on the show. Many apologies that I didn't manage to get that one out as soon as uh, I wanted to, but um, uh, but it is out there now in time for your tour. So uh, so I hope everyone goes along to see Tiff's tour. You can look online for information about that. Um, thank you also to everyone at Llama Tree Festival. Thank you to Julia who helped set this up, uh, set me appearing at Llama, and I really really enjoyed it. So I hope we can do that again. Um, thank you to all the tech team that were there. Thanks to Johnny. Uh, thanks to Nathan, who is uh, for whom my door is always open. Um, thank you, uh, Livy and uh, Emily and Ben and all the rest of the logging team as well for your uh, your efforts over summer. Um, thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to donate, please do that at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. Um, if you would like to support the show in a, in a tangible cash-based way, then you can always come up to me in the street and say something cool. Not for the next week, though, because I'm going to be on holiday. Although, to be honest, the one bit of work I will <laughs> put up with on my holiday uh, is accepting donations. So if you see me in southwest Wales in uh, driving a, a ludicrous uh, hired German motorhome, then um, by all means, chuck a bit of cash at me. Um, that's all for now for the podcast. You can follow the show online at ComComPod. If you're on Twitter, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com. And remember, if you're a cool guy and you're happy with a one-word reply that lets me get on with my life, but you know that I've read and paid attention to your email, then you can put, P.S., I'm a cool guy. Uh, if you are a comedian of huge profile who would like to appear on this show, the code remains the same. I would like to be introduced to your beautiful daughter. Send me an email, info at comedianscomedian.com. Exciting news coming up about LA Podfest, uh, which uh, you can get a live streaming code for. If you put the word comedian into the lapodfest.com website, you can get a discount on a live stream of the entire podcast festival. There are such great, great shows there. Welcome to Night Vale are going to be there. Kevin Pollock's going to be there. Um, there are a really exciting batch the Crab Feast that's a really fun podcast um, loads of great American guys will be there with their pods guys and girls I'm using guys in a gender neutral sense um, but gender neutral people and girls will be there and um, uh, and so go to lapodfest.com and you can listen along you can stream it live and enjoy it all as I do and probably hear my ridiculous hooting laugh in the background so add the word comedian uh, for your discount voucher and that gives me a little uh, uh, kickback as well a little something to keep the lights on so that is everything I wanted to say for you now that concludes the podcast I'll have a quick chat with you if you fancy hanging around after this pause so I will try and make this brief. This is the post Edinburgh thing. Everyone does this on Facebook these days, but I just want to say a couple of thank yous uh, to everyone at uh, my management, uh, Hannah and Breed and Jet in particular, who kept me going throughout the festival and looked after me very well. And um, thank you to everybody that gave me a gig up there that I was able to come and do. Apologies to those of you I had to pull. It turns out doing Edinburgh with a baby is far, far harder than I thought. And I, I um, oh, I especially wanted to know before I get onto any baby stuff. Um, I really wanted to thank everyone that came along to Comedians Comedian Redacted, which was the secret non-flyered, uh, non-advertised show. We only mentioned it on the podcast, and I think once in the Facebook group. Um, that was on as part of PBH's Free Fringe. Thanks to everyone there, of course. And it was so much fun. We did three of them. 
Uh, thank you to all my guests that turned up. Thanks to Pete Dobbing, who um, was on the show as the kind of... He's sort of, if you imagine, a sort of stato desk-based role, except rather than be a kind of a helper, he was almost kind of directing the show live and kind of answering... Uh, he's sort of in charge of lateral thinking. So it was enormously exciting to be able to work with Pete at last and be back on stage with him. We did a double act once on the street, like literally for a week, years and years ago. Really good fun to, to work with Pete on that show. And thank you to everyone that came. It was so exciting getting there, not knowing whether anyone would even be there, whether, oh, God, have I made this too secret. And on all three occasions, there was a queue out of the door. And on the third one in particular, I was very late, and they all cheered when I got there. So thank you all uh, for coming along to that. Exciting news to come about what that show might be next year uh, at the festival. And... Um, just so such such an exciting experience to walk in and we did oh i can't i'm not going to tell you any of the stuff we did because it's redacted it's secret but um the very beginning knowing that everyone in the packed into this tiny little room bar three people who'd been brought everyone was a long-term hardcore fan of this show got all the in jokes got all the references ah i have to wipe the smile off my face to keep talking because it uh Ah, it was so so much fun so thanks to everyone who was a part of that I am. I hope and trust that we will do that or something very like it again one day soon um, I, you can hear me wheezing god I'm knackered my body is physically broken and destroyed we drove back from Edinburgh last night all the way in one go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles and uh, I am just going to very quickly leave you with my highlights of the festival um, before I disappear and start asking Johnny to upload this and um, and wash my hands of it in an attempt to go away and be on holiday for a week. I'm sorry, I've let the schedule of podcast releases slide recently. I owed you two more episodes after the Bill Burr one. Um, I've got a load in the can. I just want to... Uh, I just went up there... It was a maelstrom, right? These are the, my top three moments. One was being on in no order. One was being on stage with Pete, uh, redacted. It was great fun, and um, obviously I had so much, so much other you know gigs everywhere, and the Tartan Ribbon benefit for like the fifth year. That was so much fun. Doing my show, the Boutros came on stage at the very final uh, uh, performance of my show, just the last two minutes, which was glorious. Lovely little poached egg, um, and. Uh, and also, I, I got uh, I was left with the Boutros to look after him. After he's seven months, he turned seven months a couple of days ago, and uh, his mum went to a wedding in London. So she flew away, and I looked after him for about thirty six hours on my own uh, with a little bit of uh, backup from his granny. But I, you know, she she knew that I wanted to uh, do the the thing myself and cope with it myself. So she mostly did like babysitting while I was on stage, and. Um, I, I've one of the best moments. This, oh God, it's so, so empowering. And so I had such great bonding time with him whilst being on the verge of tears and feeding him from a bottle that he hated in the middle of the night. And he'd wake up every couple of hours and it was just, you know, yet yeah, obviously I've come out of that situation going, oh, I've got new, new respect for mums. Obviously I have, that's pathetic. It sounds trite to say, but holy hell, I really do. Um, but... On the and I know this is one of those awful things where mums don't get this kind of treatment. It's just people think it's a bit special if dad actually bothers parenting for a bit. But that n notwithstanding, uh, the two other babies and parents and other friends who we lived with at the festival for the month, on the first morning, the Saturday morning after I had done my first night up with the baby all night, um, 
kind of coping with it and uh, and variously not coping with it. We made it through. He was alive. I was alive. And everyone came into our room and gave me a round of applause. It was so... I just... It was what a lovely, memorable moment. And even as I say that, I just feel terrible because I'm like, yeah, well, it's like when I got... I was at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival and uh, a little old man helped me carry my shopping to the car because I was... I don't even think I was visibly floundering, but it was just one of those things where people will help a guy with a baby because they're like, obviously, he doesn't know what's going on. And you do feel like, oh, I, I hope you do this for my partner. But they probably wouldn't because it feels less of a special thing and it's all terribly sexist and uh, upsetting and also really joyful and, and, and thank you. So uh, <laughs> thanks very much. Um, I, I, so that was one. Uh, the redacted thing was another. Boutros coming on stage with me was another. Look at this. Look at this. These are some of the comments people put. I was turning away people from the show. It really went off this year. It really went off. And I was turning people away from the stand-up show because we couldn't fit any more people in the room. We, this is great news. Gareth says, we missed it yesterday, but this is great news for Goldsmith. Someone said it's going quite... Great news, Stuart. Well done, you. Someone says going badly for 50 people a day. Uh, Sandy says I had to climb over a table to get a seat last year um, Marion turned up she said Kirsty said so glad I made it in fab show um, Matthew Winning says if you get turned away please come to my show around the corner at Opium at 3.45 great work winning um, very funny man so uh, I hope uh, I hope so someone started posting pictures of them not feeling confident in the queue Marina says, congratulations on a brilliant crafted set, expertly timed, paced and delivered. Uh, Scott says, my first show of the Fringe in a belter, standing room only. Uh, but, uh, um, uh, Max says, a friend of mine's parents went to see your show on my Facebook recommendation and loved it. And David says, the woman who flies for blah, 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 tells me Stu shows the best things he's seen this year. Look, that that's I didn't retweet any praise when I was up there. I didn't post anything when I was up there. I just let it all happen. And I felt like this year... So forgive me is what I'm saying for reading those. I felt like this year was... Do you remember... I don't know if we covered this in my interview with Tim Key, but it's something he said to me years ago. He said, there is a certain point at Edinburgh where you really... Like, several hours in, or however many hours in... You know, hours in the sense of your your own hour, different hour-long shows. A few shows in, he said, you start to realise that more than half of them are there because they know who you are and they're there to see you. And I felt like that was my year for this. Thank you so much for coming. I feel a bit emotional. I'm still absolutely exhausted. But it felt like this was a bit of a turning point year where a lot of people came and a good chunk of those people. You could just tell when you... I've done so many gigs in my life. When you walk on stage, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stuart Goldsmith. And you can tell there is a different, more excitable cheer when... A lot of the, a large percentage of the audience know what they're going to get. People were leaving saying, "We saw you last year. So great to come back." People say, "Oh, we've been seeing you for years." It felt like a sort of a tipping point for me, where it's it's a bit different now. As well, it might be this many years in, but you know, I'm so so profoundly grateful to have that moment, and I want to say thank you to my partner as well for all of her support in. Uh, in everything in every aspect so if i'm saying all my thank yous thanks man you uh she's not a man <laughs> we call each other man all the time thanks man you really made it possible in a way that i absolutely couldn't have done it without you and i'm feeling a little bit teary so i'm gonna stop what an incredible month 
What an incredible month. I hope you'll come and see the show on tour. It's called Compared to What, and I'll give you all the tour details. If you sign up for the mailing list um, at comedianscomedian.com, then you can uh, get little notice about it ahead of details. I'll try and do, like, it's a massive faff to go around all the venues, trying to get money off deals and stuff, but I'll, I'll try and do something special for you guys um, to reward you all for listening. That'll do for now. I'm going on holiday. I hope that I will be back in two I think the next episode will be in two weeks I've got such great episodes in the can for you Carmen Lynch Chris Gethard oh, I was an absolute belter Leah Sugola Joe DeRosa brilliant brilliant show Cam- uh, Cameron Esposito um, from Montreal I've still got to release the Lewis Black live ep from uh, from Montreal not to mention a really brilliant slightly drunk one and we had a really drunk rambler with Mark Forward and um, and even more people than I can remember so loads of episodes to come the sky's the limit I don't have to write another show for some time. I've got this is the longest time in my life. This is the best week. It's the week where I haven't got to present a brand new stand up comedy for as as long as I possibly don't have to. So, uh, yeah, one year. So, that's. I, I, this is even for a waffle, I've fallen apart. Thanks, everybody. What a month. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 